welcome. We're glad you're here, those of you who are with us online. Uh, especially welcome to those who maybe are here for the first time. You're kind of checking this place out or someone has invited you or you're checking us online or watching this at a later time, whatever it is. We're so glad that you are with us. We'd love to know a little bit about you. And uh, again, if you're online, there's a little button there. It just says new here. You can click that. Give us some information. We'll follow up with you. If you're here in the sanctuary, uh, there's a QR code that is there at your seat that you can use to give us some of that information or stop by the Welcome Center, whatever. We just would love to get uh, connected uh, to you. So, uh, so I've been gone for uh, the last couple of weeks. And uh, first of all, first of all, before I say anything else, didn't Jess and Kyle do an amazing job over these last two weeks? In uh, our series in First John, and I got to do a couple of really cool things. One, I got to uh, speak at the National Association of the Church of God. It is the 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 National Association of the Church of God is the historically black uh, congregations within the Church of God that have an annual camp meeting experience in Pennsylvania that has been going on. This was the 105th anniversary of that, and uh, so to be asked to speak was an incredible honor and. I have so many friends that are part of that association and uh, great to be there with them and kind of rekindle all those relationships. The other thing that I got to do is uh, some of you know that Donna and I, we have seven grandkids and uh, when our grandkids reach 10 or fourth grade or through fourth grade, we take them on a grandparent trip that is curated by that particular grandchild and, uh, and is reflective of kind of their uh, interests and all of that. And Tanner, who uh, turned 10 this year and finished fourth grade this year, is our fourth grandchild. And uh, so we got to go on the grandparent trip uh, this last week, this past week, uh, which we're so thankful for, uh, for a number of reasons. We weren't sure it was going to happen. And so we just praise the Lord for the fact that it happened. Um, she loves Legos. And so the first thing that we did, we went to Legoland in Florida which I didn't even know was a thing. And, and, and I, people that I tell that to say, you don't know anything then. Because, yeah, <laughs> Legoland is a really big deal. And so we went to Legoland. It was awesome. It, everything was awesome. Yeah, okay. I, I, knew, I knew four people would get that. The rest of you would laugh because you, you didn't get it or whatever. But anyway, everything was awesome. It was fantastic. And then we did uh, a Disney cruise. She loves Disney and the princesses and all that. We did a Disney cruise. We'd never done, we'd been to Disney World, but we'd never done a Disney cruise before, so we did that. And I just will say that um, Disney is a magical, is a magical place. That they, they, they take your money and they make it disappear. <laughs> and, and it just, it was magical. Every day we were on a ship. It was just, every day got more magical. There's just... Just more and more things just disappeared and just the whole thing was just magical. It was incredible. And uh, so we're really thankful for that and thankful uh, that we have the opportunity to do that. And I know that's kind of unique and, and so very, very cool. And the kids, I, I just have to say, it's, it's seven or eight days that we do this, but the kids, they talk about it for years leading up to it. They talk about it for years afterwards. And it's just been an amazing thing. It's kind of shaped our relationship with our grandkids, which we're really thankful for. So uh, I want to just remind you a few things uh, today, and then we're going to do a, a really special little interview here before I, I jump into the message. Uh, one is that we launched a new app last week, and new Fairfax app, and we encourage you 
to get it. It's super cool. It has so many different features, uh, and they're adding features all the time to it. It's real, real easy to download it. You can use the QR code that's on your seat uh, to download it. And, uh, and we'll be talking about the app more and more and, ref- and referencing it, and more and more we'll be saying, hey, just check that out on the app, do that on the app. So if you don't have the app, it'll be a little harder to kind of do some of that stuff. So we encourage you to get that. Uh, the second thing is last week we launched all of our small groups, um, uh, all of our adult groups, uh, all of our college groups. And uh, if you have not had the opportunity yet to register for a small group this fall, uh, this is the opportunity, this is the time. We really believe that uh, growing in our faith, um, uh, growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ is a team sport. We do this together. It's not just us and, and God or me and God. It's you or you and God. It's, it's like us together as a community. We need each other in this process. And for us here at Fairfax, being in a small group is the best way to do that. So we encourage you to get uh, signed up uh, there on the app. There is a kind of a, a my groups area that you can see kind of all the different kind of groups, which one would fit you. If you want to talk to someone today, there's folks out in the lobby that you can talk to. And so stop by and talk to them. Third thing I wanted to say, and I want you to get excited about this, is that this Wednesday is our night of worship. And uh, it's going to be fantastic. So the night of worship is at 7 o'clock. Before that, at 5 o'clock, is our block party that we're going to have. And uh, we're going to have a food truck there. And I just want to say that for those of you who have come to the last two nights of worship, and we said we're going to have a food truck, and you ended up with pizza, I just want you to know the food truck is really going to be here this time, okay? You can trust us on this, okay? We've locked it down. It is, it is a done deal. It will be here. There is no backing out. We've, they've signed in blood. Anyway, they're going to they're gonna absolutely be here. And so it's going to be amazing, a chance to hang out with some folks and eat some great food and play some games and all that. Just fun stuff before we come together and have a party and worship the Lord. And if you have kids that you're going to bring and you'd like them to be in children's ministry, uh, we'd really like if you would register them. Uh, again, you can do that on the app. You can use the QR code. You can go to our website. You can stop by uh, the family center on your way out, whatever. We encourage you to get registered uh, for that. And then speaking of our children's ministry, I just want to say we have the most incredible children's ministry anywhere in the United States. Can I just say that? Absolutely incredible. And we're looking for adults who care about the next generation, want to pour into the next generation, looking for a volunteer opportunity that can have just eternal significance. And and that's children's ministry. And so uh, if you're open to doing that, we we need, we're putting together kind of our fall team and uh, we really need you to be a part of that. And so again, uh, you can use the QR code, you can, you can on the app, sign up on the app, or again, stop by Children's Ministry on your way out and talk to someone there. Okay, um, I want to say, we're going we're gonna to bring some folks up and do just a little quick interview. Uh, about a year ago, we're celebrating the kind of one-year anniversary, I don't know if celebrating is the right word, but it's the one-year anniversary of um, the pullout, the pullout of U.S. troops in Afghanistan, and an influx of refugees that came to the United States, many of which, thousands of which, ended up in the D.C. area. And we knew when it happened that we wanted to respond in some way, some tangible way. And so we just put together an Afghan relief fund 
And as is so often the case with our congregation, you responded uh, amazing, amazingly. And, um, and we received lots of funds. And, and we thought it was really important on kind of this one-year anniversary of that to give you a little update on what we've done with those funds, how many funds, how much came in, what we've done with that, how God has been at work, which is really, really cool. And so Brooke Luther and Valerie Nolan are on the point of our outreach uh, ministry, and I've invited them to come up and share just a little bit of that. So would you welcome Valerie Nolan and Brooke Luther to the stage? All right. First of all, thank you for all the stuff that you do in outreach and, and uh, both locally and, and globally. Um, tremendous response on the part of the congregation as related to uh, the Afghan refugee fund. Um, what was the number? And yeah, first of all. It was an amazing response. It was $74,000 wow. to the Afghan refugee wow. fund. That's yeah, really cool. That's, amazing. That's really cool. And I know that um, you guys have been so thoughtful, and I think this is one of the things I take great pride in for our church, is that we are um, really good stewards of the money that comes in, and in, in that we're thinking about how can we have the, the biggest impact and the most long-term impact with something like that. And uh, so a lot of thought and prayer has gone into that. Um, how many refugees ended up kind of landing in the D.C. area, and then how have, how have we been responding to that? Yeah, so um, what we've learned in this whole process is about 4,000 um, Afghan refugees ended up resettling in this area, um, and thousands more came through the area at the very beginning because they were all, a lot of them were flying into Dulles, being transferred to the Expo Center, to bases along the way, and then, you know, transferred out to other places for resettlement, but about 4,000 of them stayed here. Um, and so, really, um, we used some of the funding at the very beginning just for the emergency response system. We had some contacts that we were able to get food and clothing and water and snacks and stuff into the airport and into the Dulles Expo Center, um, as I'm sure many of you guys were, um, you know, seeing in the news and all that kind of stuff. Like, a lot of the, the folks that were coming in really just had the clothes on their back, and they were setting up you know, shower systems and stuff at the Expo Center was kind of crazy, but um, so just getting basic supplies out for their essential needs at that point. Um, and after that settled down, like after those first few weeks, we really were able to like turn our mind toward what, what the long game was going to be um, in, in, you know, stewarding this relief fund. Um, and so we got connected with Lutheran Social Services, which is the largest um, resettlement agency that has a contract with the federal government for resettlement here um, and just began to build that relationship with them and learned what some of their needs were. Um, basically what we had learned was that you know, normally in a year's period of time, they would resettle about 500 refugees. Mm. Um, and during this crisis over this past year, they've resettled 500 per month wow. over wow. the last year. So they were completely overwhelmed and we were just, you know, as, a, as the local church, we just raised our hands, like, how can we help? You know, how can we come alongside of you guys? And one of the things that they ended up starting was this food security board, um, where basically they got together five churches that sort of raised their hand to help and, and say, um, what we need right now is we need to get food to some of these families. So in the process of them actually um, 
arriving here and doing their paperwork to when they got connected to SNAP benefits and food and long, more long-term services, there was this gap because they were so overwhelmed. There was just, they were handling so many people that many of these families didn't have any food to eat. So, so we, that's really what we focused on as a church is getting these food boxes together. Um, we all took different zip codes in Fairfax County to cover the whole county. And we provided over this last year and, and continue to actually, um, about 60 food boxes per month, which re reach about 290 people um, coming into our resource center, delivering out. And many of you guys sitting in the seats, I can see a lot of faces that were actually part of those volunteer teams that actually went out and delivered um, a lot of these food boxes throughout the year. And it's just, yeah, that's, that's the majority of where we spend and, our time. And what I love about our approach is yeah. that we really were able to get connected with those families. And to develop relationships with them. And I know for us, like we can get transactional and kind of give stuff away to even lots of folks, but never develop a relationship. But with these 60 families, we've been able to develop a relationship, um, see God at work, become aware of other needs that we've been able to respond to or point them in the right direction, which has just been amazing. So I know a lot of stories uh, have kind of arisen from this more than we can tell. But is there a story for each of you that kind of stands out as you think about kind of how God has been working through this? Well, well speaking of long-term relationships, we, um, when the Syrian refugee crisis came along in 2016, we were connected, met, um, befriended a man who was um, a refugee from Afghanistan who came over at that time. And we were, um, you know, in and out of contact over the years. We helped him back then, and we were in and out of contact with him over the years and uh, with he and his wife. Um, and then in, uh, when Afghanistan fell, we were texting because we knew he had family in Afghanistan still, and so we were reaching out to him to see how they were and checking in on him. Uh, when we found out he was actually in Afghanistan. He had taken his children that he had had, you know, that he and his wife had had in the five years that they were here um, over to meet his family and uh, got caught up in the, the fall of Afghanistan. So we spent a lot of time um, just texting with him, um, trying to, you know, as he navigated getting to the airport um, and once he was at the airport, before he was, he was evacuated, just texting with him, praying for him, letting him know we were praying for him, um, just encouraging them as best we could in the situation that they were in. So when he finally, you know, he went through probably a little over a month of being quarantined at a base, and then when he finally landed back here in the States, or in Virginia, he was like a one-man Red Cross. He was all the people he had met along the way in his journey, friends and family that he knew that came over, people that we were able to um, say, hey, can you talk to them because you understand their, what, they're, what they're going through. Um, he was help reaching out and helping them. And in the course of that, he would let us know what their specific needs were. And so we were able to use some of those funds to, to provide for families for their very specific needs as they were arriving. That's so awesome. Yeah, yeah. Valerie. Yeah, so as we were doing these food deliveries monthly, about like seven out of 10 times, the um, folks will invite you in for tea. They're so hospitable, it's amazing. And you just get to sit with them and hear their stories. and. Um, that just made such an impression on me, getting to like meet the families face to face and just hearing about their resiliency um, and 
you know, we've been to Lebanon and places around the world where we've heard these stories as well. And, you know, I just remember sitting in this one precious family's living room in Manassas, Virginia, going just, yeah, the God has brought the world here. And yeah. it's just been, it's been amazing to get to know them um, and just know their stories and how educated they are and just how hard it is to actually start from zero again, like yeah. absolutely zero. And they're just our new neighbors now. And it's yeah. just been nice to get to know them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our mission statement is to love your neighbor and sometimes your neighbor is around the world and sometimes your neighbor is next door. And I think some of the brokenness that we've seen in places around the world, we see here and to be able to respond to that has been amazing. It's been amazing too, uh, just the way God has allowed us to use this incredible building that he's entrusted to our care to respond to needs in the community in some cool ways and kind of non-traditional ways that we've been able to use the building which has been awesome uh, and I know something uh, you might talk about that but something recently happened that I thought was particularly cool for us to be a part of yeah yeah, I could talk about it. So um, throughout the year, we've, we have a beautiful facility. We've been able to do lots of storage and, um, and really as a, like a loading dock here, too, for lots of food and distribution, diapers and formula and stuff. But most recently, we had um, Lutheran Social Services come and ask us if, if they, we could host um, some of the asylum workshops that they're doing. So at the end of the 12-month visa period, um, all of these... Um, refugees have to apply for asylum to stay in the United States, and they're just getting hundreds of people through these asylum workshops. And so they um, had been meeting in some warehouses and some crazy places without air conditioning and stuff. And so, you know, we said we can host these. And they were just overwhelmed at um, just being able to have a space that they didn't have to think about and to be able to just do the hard, hard work. I mean, it's like two eight-hour days that they go through and they're writing an application of their story um, and to just be able to like be on the sidelines and provide coffee and tea and just make it as pleasant of an experience as something like that could possibly be. And um, Ronnie became their best friend. Yeah, they love. They tried to steal Ronnie from us, but <laughs> I said no. Ronnie's ours. No, they loved Ronnie. He makes the best coffee ever, and they love the tea. All of it. Just, but just being in such a warm and welcoming place, um, yeah. I think, was huge. We, yeah. We've had. Um, a lot of community leaders coming through with the resource center opening and LSS is, is no exception who have talked about how incredibly welcoming this place is yeah. and they you know can't put their finger on it or whatever but um, we just keep welcoming them back and the, the thing about the welcome is that they feel um, they feel seen and they feel cared for and they feel loved. And I think that's a huge testament to what this building and the people in it and the welcoming hospitality that we're offering. Yeah, I mean, throughout the Bible, it talks about welcoming the stranger and that yeah. being really the hallmark of what Christian hospitality is all about. And for people to experience that, even if they haven't connected the dots, don't know what's kind of behind it, mm -hmm. but to experience it, I think just says a ton. And I love who's walking through our doors during the yes. week. And not just folks that are themselves receiving need, but folks that are on the front lines with others who are receiving it and the connections that are happening and the networks and the fact that more and more uh, organizations and people are coming to us because they know we have positioned ourselves to be in connection with all that. It's just exciting what God is doing. So thank you all so much for what you've been doing, for how well you've stewarded these resources, continue to steward 
these resources for your teams, both on staff, which I know we have a lot of folks that are involved on staff and a lot of folks volunteer, an amazing, amazing team. I think it's one of the I think it's one of the coolest teams that we have in the church yes, and, and uh, very, very neat. But thank you so much for that. Would you give it up for Brooke and for Valerie? Thank you so much. Thank you. Good job. Good job. Wrapping up this series uh, in 1 John, it's been an amazing series, um, and it's been eight weeks that we've spent in a, five, a book that's five chapters long, and, uh, and it's been fun to be able to kind of dig in um, uh, really deeply into each of, these, each of these chapters. And it's been fun for me not just to preach it, but to also to listen to Kyle and Jess and Josh as they've done an amazing job of uh, unpacking the truth of this. And the core, just to kind of remind you again as we Get into this last chapter, the, the whole message that runs through the theme of 1 John is that God is both uh, light and love, that, that, that he is both light, truth, uh, and, he's, and he's love. And those two are inextricably connected, that you cannot, you cannot talk about love without talking about truth. You can't talk about truth without talking about love. In fact, love without truth, John would say, love without truth is not really Love and truth without love is not really truth, that those two go together. And as John keeps pointing out, Jesus is the embodiment of that, that Jesus is the embodiment, not just of love, but Jesus is the embodiment of truth. And, and sometimes we think about Jesus, talk about Jesus, whatever, like we get the love part and don't understand the truth part, but Jesus embodies both of those and John so beautifully unpacks those themes throughout the book. Now we're to chapter 5 as we wrap this up today and the theme that runs through the entire chapter in chapter 5 is this idea of overcoming the world and we're going to unpack that a little bit because that could take us into some uh, not great areas of like what does it mean to overcome the world. We're going to unpack that Today, But before I do that, I want to begin with a quote uh, by Martin Luther King. Uh, he says, the end of life, he said, the end of life is not to be happy, nor to achieve pleasure and avoid pain, but to do the will of God, come what may. Now, this quote, when it was, when it was originally said, was, was incredibly countercultural, but it continues to be incredibly countercultural. Doing the will of God is not the way most people today think about what it means to be fully human. But for Dr. King, it was impossible to think about what it means to be a human being 
what it means to be fully human without simultaneously thinking about what it meant to be created by God, that those two things are inextricably connected. Dr. King's whole civil rights movement was bound up in the notion that human beings, all human beings, not just white human beings, all human beings have God-given significance. For Dr. King, pursuing justice and standing up for civil rights only makes sense if God exists and has given all humanity an intrinsic value that is different than the animals, that is different than an amalgamation of various biological elements. And for John, this God-given significance, which is what he really deals with in chapter 5, is not fully understood until we enter into a relationship with the God who gives us that intrinsic value, who gives us that significance. And he refers to that relationship in chapter 5 as being born of God in other places in the book as well. And according to John, being born of God changes everything. And that's just another way of talking about Accepting Christ, coming into a relationship with Christ, becoming a follower of Jesus, getting born again, whatever the terminology is, that it changes everything. This is how he starts the chapter. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is the love, this is love for God, to obey his commands. This is, love. this is what it means to love God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now the end of that passage is unexpected. When you're reading through that and you get to, to verse 5 and you see that question, who is it? Like, who is it that overcomes the world? Like, you think the answer is going to be Jesus. Because Jesus does overcome the world. And you're just kind of reading through and you think, well, that's what he's going to say. Is that, who is it that overcomes the world? It's Jesus that overcomes the world. And that's true. But that's not what John says here. He says, it's the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God who has overcome the world. In fact, in verse 4, he says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. So he's asking the question, who is it that overcomes the world? He's saying, you are the ones that overcome the world. You overcome the world if you've been born of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, you are an overcomer. And it's that theme that runs through the whole chapter. Now, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to overcome the world? And how do those who are born of God, those who follow Jesus, how do we overcome the world? And this is where it so often runs off the tracks. This is where so often we get this wrong, we head in directions that never was meant, that we turn following Jesus into something it was never meant to be. John, and let me just kind of unpack what it doesn't mean. John doesn't say that followers of Jesus will overtake the world. That's really important. 
He doesn't say that we'll overtake the world. This is not about us versus them. This is not about overpowering people. This is not about us getting our way. This is not about us imposing our way on others. John says that those who follow Jesus will overcome the world. And the key to understanding that phrase is by understanding the word world. Because the word world that John's talking about here is he's not talking about the material world. He's not talking about earth. John's not talking about followers of Jesus taking over the planet, taking over the earth. The word world is not referring to the people in the world. John's not talking about overcoming other people or controlling other people or imposing our will on other people. The world that John is referring to is probably best understood as a kind of comprehensive cultural peer pressure. A cultural peer pressure that gets us to adopt uh, a particular set of values, a particular set of beliefs, uh, motives, behaviors that are contrary to God's values and are in fact opposed to God. Now we all understand peer pressure, especially if we remember back when we were in junior high and senior high, like, you know, we, all of us face peer, we continue to face peer pressure, but particularly it was kind of keen during that time. I, I was in high school in the early 70s. That was the 1970s, not the 1870s, just to make sure everyone's clear on that. And just even the way I dressed reflected the peer pressure that you go under when you're in high school. I wore bell-bottom pants, bell-bottom pants that swept the floor. Like, the wider the better, the longer the better. They called them sweepers. And so they never had to sweep the hallways of our school because we swept the hallways every time we went up and down just with those huge bell bottoms that were incredible. I would show you the picture, but I don't have a picture. And Kyle probably has the picture, but he's been sworn to secrecy. Okay, so I wore bell bottom pants and I wore these, no, no kidding, these white vinyl platform shoes. That made me almost seven feet tall. I mean, these were platform shoes. In, in, in fact, when our basketball team put on sneakers, just regular shoes, and came on the basketball court, they were a foot shorter when they were than when, what they were walking through the hallways of the school. So it was hilarious. And, but that's what everyone was wearing. So it seemed normal. It seemed natural. That's, that's peer pressure. Now, that's a... That's a harmless form of peer pressure. Unless you fell off the platform shoes. That's a harmless form of peer pressure. But the kind of peer pressure John is talking about is more destructive than that. It's this powerful corporate pressure that we all contribute to in some way. And we're all immersed in, in some way, that encourages us to believe that, that we are our own ultimate authority. To believe that basically it's up to us to determine what is right and what is wrong. It's up to us to determine what we will do and what we won't do. And it so often leads to, to awful stuff, to rampant materialism, to twisted individualism, to sexism, to racism, to just all kinds of unhealthy stuff. And John says that when we're born of God, when we become a follower of Jesus, when we're born of God, we begin to overcome 
the world, that we began to overcome this kind of comprehensive cultural peer pressure, that we find ourselves increasingly liberated from it. We find that obedience to God, being in the yes position to God, is actually incredibly satisfying. We, we see that walking in the ways of God rather than walking in our own ways is actually a good thing, that it's a freeing thing, that it's something to delight in. John says it no longer becomes burdensome, that being in the yes position of God is no longer a burden, it's something that sets us free. It's something that we delight in, it's something that we seek after. In other words, overcoming the world is being fully human. That's what it means to overcome the world. Now, oftentimes when we say, I'm only human, we use it as a kind of excuse. It's an attempt to, to justify maybe a bad behavior or to justify maybe a bad attitude. Say, so, well, I'm only human. I'm only human. Well, we're only human. But the reality is, is that being fully human is about living out our true identity. It's about living out who God has created us to be. It's about reclaiming the image of God. Like overcoming the world is about reclaiming the image of God that has been disfigured and distorted by sin. Overcoming the world is about reclaiming our true beauty that has been marred by the ugliness of sin. That when you overcome the world... Like things begin to change, that when you overcome the world, you love your enemies better. When you overcome the world, you become more open-handed and generous with the resources that God has entrusted to your care. When you overcome the world, you live with arms outstretched, ready to receive love, ready to give love. You, when you overcome the world, you you work for and you weep with the broken and the suffering in the world. When you overcome the world, you listen better. Even to people who express things and have a very, very different perspective than you have. When you overcome the world, you value people more and you demonize people less. When you overcome the world, you begin to see people not as objects to be used or problems to be solved or people to be fixed, but as fellow image bearers to be cherished and to be loved. That's what it means to overcome the world. And John says that all of that, being an overcomer, all of that is made possible because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. See, on the cross, everything changed. On the cross, the one who had life took on our death so that we could take on his life. On the cross, the beloved and the cherished son of the father became forsaken so that we could become God's beloved. On the cross, the one who for eternity 
had been in the intimate presence of the Father was cut off so that we would never be cut off from the intimate presence of God. On the cross, the beautiful one took on our ugliness so that we could take on his beauty. So how do we actually live that out? It's one thing to declare it. It's one thing to hear it. It's one thing to preach about it. It's one thing to sing about it. It's one thing to say, we are overcomers. We have overcome the world. We are overcoming the world. But what does it mean to actually live this stuff out on a daily basis? And one of the keys to living as overcomers is actually so simple that I think we just, we just miss it. We just, we just go past it. C.S. Lewis, I think, describes it beautifully when he says this. Do not waste time bothering whether you are concerning yourself with whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone who you dislike, you will find yourself disliking them even more. If you do the person a good turn, you will find yourself disliking them less. And here's what C.S. Lewis is saying, and this is really what John is saying, is that it's true that our thoughts shape our behavior. Certainly that is true. But it's also true that our behavior shapes our behavior. That our behavior shapes our thinking. And that's true with everything we do. Especially everything we do in living out the fact that we are overcomers of the world. It's true about our prayer life. It's true about our study of God's word. It's true about our worship, our generosity, our relationships. Everything. If you wait till you feel like an overcomer to act like an overcomer, then you probably won't experience what is already yours, what is already your possession in Christ. Feelings are not the in- feelings are important, but feelings are not the engine that drives the train. Feelings are the caboose that follows things that have already been set in motion. When the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver, I've heard that used a lot to go, well, I'm just not ready because I'm not cheerful yet about my giving. When God says I love a, God loves a cheerful giver, it doesn't mean wait until you're cheerful to give. It means let your act of generosity lead you to a place of joy rather than leading you to a place of resentment. Which leads to what John says next in verses 13 through 15. He says, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked for. Being born of God should give you an incredible sense of confidence. I think what's so often lacking in our faith, even those, who, us, even those of us who have been born of God, those who have put our faith in Jesus, love Jesus, we've trusted our life to Jesus, we know we're going to spend eternity with him, is that we sometimes lack the confidence that should be ours 
because of what has happened, because of our identity. Confidence in your identity, that you've overcome the world. Confidence in your future, that eternal life is already your possession. And confidence in your prayer life. John says, if you're a child of God, like, don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to ask your father for help. Don't be a God forgetter in the moments when you need God to be involved in your life. Like, don't be afraid to ask for help. And don't worry. Like, don't be preoccupied. Don't worry that your prayers will, will maybe be too extravagant or your request is too extravagant or that it sounds ridiculous or that maybe uh, it's not what God uh, wants. Just ask. Just ask boldly. Just ask confidently. I, I think one of the things that's changed in my prayer life is that I've come to this understanding that, you know, I think that there was a time in my life where I so, I so was focused on praying exactly the right thing that I thought for sure aligned with God's will or that was within God's will that I lost at times my boldness in just asking, my confidence in just asking, of not not thinking too much in some respects, not thinking too much before I prayed. Like if you want to get a sense that it's okay to just kind of blurt out what you're thinking, to blurt out and ask God for whatever it is that you're wanting to ask, just read David's prayers. Because David, if there's anyone who didn't think before he prayed, David is like a great example of that. You read some of those prayers and you go, David, what in the world? Like there's no way God is going to do that. There's no way he's going to tear your enemy apart limb by limb by limb by limb by limb. You know, like he asked for some amazing, amazing thing that God goes, nah, I'm not going to do that. You know, so, but David was bold in his asking. And I think, John is talking about here that have confidence in your prayer life. Be bold in what you ask. Don't worry about forcing God to do something that God doesn't want to do. Like God is not bound by your prayers. God is not limited by your prayers. God is like, well, I really wanted to give you this, but you asked for this. And so, okay, that's what I got to do. I've got to smite your enemy. Okay, you know, like... No, no, like God is God. And so God's going to sort it out. God's going to do what God's going to do. He will take care of that. But John goes on to say that the better that you understand the heart of God, the closer and closer and closer your prayers will align with his will. And that alignment happens the more and more that we spend time with God in prayer, that alignment happens the more and more that we spend time with God in His Word because we begin to better understand the heart of God. Like as you become to understand the heart of God, you begin to understand what God hates and hate the things that God hates. And you begin to understand the things that God loves. And you begin to love the things that God loves. 
And you begin to understand the things that God desires. And you begin to want the things that God desires. And all of that, John is saying, is what shapes, it shapes, it shapes. And it's an ongoing process. Just continues. My prayer life continues to be shaped by my engagement with God's word. It continues to be in shape by my engagement with God's spirit. My prayer just continues to be engaged by all of that and shaped by all of that. But overcoming the world is not just a me and God thing. <laughs> As with everything, like it is a team sport. God doesn't just save us and leave us on our own to just kind of figure all this stuff out. God saves us and surrounds us with a community. It's why we're always talking about community around this place. We're always talking about the importance of the church, the importance of getting connected because this is, this is a team sport and God has given us a team. He has given us community. He has given us a body. He has given us a people to be a part of that he saves us into. Look at what John says in verses 16 and 17. I love this. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, I know that passage can be really, really confusing at times. But basically, what John is assuming in this is that all of us who are overcomers, all of us who have been born of God, all of us who are followers of Jesus, all of us who are Christians, are in relationship with some people, at least a small group of people, at least a few people that we are in relationship with who are also overcomers, who are also followers of Jesus, who, are also, who have also been born of God, who know us well enough to pray for us and support us and walk alongside us when we're struggling with something in our life. When we're struggling with some behavior, when we're struggling with some attitude, when we're struggling with some physical thing, we're struggling with some relational thing, whatever it is, that know us well enough to really truly be able to pray for us and support us and love us and encourage us and comfort us and come alongside us when we are going through those difficult times, when we are involved in things that do not reflect God's best. Now, of course, people always ask the question, like, what is, like, Rod, what is a sin that leads to death? Because whatever that is, I want to avoid it at all costs. Like, tell me what that is. And, and I, I was, I, I've been in some pretty interesting conversations with folks, mostly when I was in seminary, with uh, you know, us who had nothing else to do except sit around and talk about this. Like, what do you think the sin is that leads to death? You know, and so we'd talk about it and people have all their different theories on what's that. My dad, for my dad, for my dad, I think his, I think he thought the sin that leads to death was dancing. I, I really believe that. He's just like, whatever you do, Rod, like, don't dance. He goes, that's a, the devil. That's a, that's a, that's a, he would, <laughs> he would say that's a vertical expression of a horizontal desire. That, that is... That is the sin. We'll have to edit that out. That is the sin that leads to death. No, that, that's not true of my dad. But anyway, he didn't like dancing very much. So, But I don't think that John, like John is not talking about a specific sin. In fact, he doesn't say the sin. That's usually how we quote it. What is the sin that leads to death? He doesn't even say the sin. 
He says, a sin that leads to death. And I don't think he's talking about one specific sin. I think he's talking about any sin, any sin that we're not willing to confront, any sin that we're not willing to turn from, any sin that we're not willing to repent of. Like any sin can lead to death. Any sin can be destructive, can destroy us in some way in our lives if we're not willing to deal with it. And that all sin, this is the thing that John is saying that, that sometimes we forget all sin also, all sin can lead to life. That sin and brokenness is not the end of the story. Never, ever, ever in Jesus is the end of the story. Like all sin, all mistakes, all frailty, all failures, all the things that we do that are stupid, all the things that we do that we weren't proud of, all the things that do not reflect God's best, do not have to lead to death. That they can lead to life. That they can lead to wholeness. They can lead to restoration. They can lead to reconciliation. They can lead to hope. They can lead to a future. I'm standing before you today because I bear witness to that. You are here today because you bear witness to that. We are all people. We are all people who have experienced sin that led to life, to restoration, to reconciliation. Can I get a hallelujah for that? Man, hallelujah for that. And then John wraps up the book with these uh, powerful insights. He says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin, that the one who was born of God, Jesus, keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now I'll just blitz through this last part really quick because I know we're short on time. But he wraps this book up with three final declarations of the revolutionary change that happens when we're born of God, when we when we are overcomers of the world. He says, first of all, our behaviors change. He says, anyone born of God does not continue to sin. And we talked a few weeks ago, but that doesn't mean that we don't continue to struggle with sin because he says in chapter one, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. That when John talks about not continuing in sin, he's not talking about the absence of sin. He's talking about our posture towards sin. That when you're born of God, your posture towards sin changes. You become more aware of it. You become more sensitive of it. You're, you're willing to confess. You're willing to repent of it. You're willing to turn from it. Secondly, John says, not only will there be a change of behavior, there'll be a change of heart. He says, we know we're children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now that doesn't mean, this is really important to hear, that doesn't mean that everyone that's not a follower of Jesus is of the devil. He's just talking about how anything other than God, even good things, if you allow them to become the ultimate thing in your life, will eventually become destructive. They will eventually become a tool of the evil one in your life. That rather than God controlling us, that the good things, whatever those good things are, a relationship, a job, a, a, a resource, a house, whatever it is, that those good things beca- begin to control us. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't 
control those good things, all of our relationships, we should, I mean, that doesn't mean we shouldn't enjoy them. It just means that every relationship, every creative task, every decision, every adventure, every goal, every hope, every dream should be God-driven. It should be God-fueled. It should be God-inspired. And then finally, John says that there will be a change in your mind, a change in your behavior, a change in your heart, and a change in your mind. He says, we know also that the Son of Man has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And the understanding that John is talking about is not just about believing something. He's talking about the understanding that comes from experiencing something. Before I got my cancer diagnosis, when people would talk to me about their experiences with cancer or the experiences of someone who they loved with cancer, I believed it. I believed what they were talking about. And I could, I could have empathy for what they were talking about. And hopefully, I showed empathy when my wife got cancer 15 years ago, was able to understand in that sense what she was, what she was going through in terms of that I believed in and was able to be empathetic. But when I got cancer... I began to understand that in just a profoundly different way. That's just what experience does. When you experience something, you just understand it in a profoundly different way. And John is saying that Jesus came into this world not just so that we could know about God. In fact, he's, that's not what he says, that you can know about God, but that you can know God. Jesus came so that we could know God, so that we could, so that we, he says, so that we may know him who is true. And knowing God is not just about believing that God exists. Knowing God is not just about believing that God loves you or believing that Jesus died for you. That knowing God is having all of that become real because you have experienced his presence. You have experienced his love. You have experienced his power. You have experienced his forgiveness. You have experienced his grace. Have you experienced? Have you experienced God? Have you experienced his love? Experienced his forgiveness? Experienced his power? Experienced his grace? And if you haven't, my prayer today is that you will. Those of you that are online, those of you who are watching this later, my prayer is that in this moment, you will. That you will say yes to what Jesus has done for you on the cross. That you will begin to experience that for yourself. And for those of you who say, yes, I have experienced that. I have put my faith in Christ. I know that I'm a overcomer that I have overcome the world I know that I'm born of God I know I'm going to spend eternity with him let me just ask you are you continuing to experience that are you continuing to experience the power of being an overcomer continue to experience God's love continue to experience his grace continue to experience his forgiveness continue to experience his presence Continuing to live out 
this overcomer status that is yours in Jesus. God, that's our prayer. Our prayer is for everyone, everyone, everyone to not just know about God, to not just believe in God, to believe that Jesus came, to believe that Jesus died on the cross, to believe that Jesus is the Savior, but to experience it, to experience his salvation, to experience his love, to experience his forgiveness. To experience the power of overcoming the world. May we walk in that power. May we live in that power. May we experience that power. May this week we know that power. The power of overcoming the world. In the name of Jesus, the overcomer we pray. And all God's people said, amen.